being here. We are going to jump into our next segment of typology, seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. And during this segment, we're going to focus on the Exodus. Now, when we use the phrase typology, what we mean is that there are events that literally happen in Old Testament scriptures. And those things are foreshadows of events that are going to be fulfilled or they're pointing to events that are going to happen in the New Testament, whether that be in the life of Christ or in other areas. This is a study that we call typology. Tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on the exodus out of Egypt. So where the people of Israel are brought up out of Egypt. And what we're going to do tonight is going to be a little bit different than, than some of our other studies. We're going to pan out a little bit, and we're not just going to look at one event that happens in the Exodus. We're going to look at a succession of events that happen in the Exodus. And what we're also going to do is kind of personalize this a little bit. And the way that you're going to be able to see it is we will be able to see the life of a Christian through the lens of the Exodus, if that makes sense. Hopefully it will here in a couple moments. So let me give you a little bit of context for um, before we get to the text. Uh, Joseph uh, has risen to great power in Egypt and his family from the land of Israel has come down through, uh, you know, the means of a famine. And basically the Hebrew people just, they, they set up camp in Egypt. And so they begin to multiply and reproduce and procreate. They have all these children. And what happens is that there's a change of order. The old Pharaoh is gone, a new Pharaoh has come. And this Pharaoh is not kind towards the Hebrew people. And so the Hebrew people are put in slavery. Um, they're really just treated, they're, they're very marginalized. And basically you find yourself in a situation where um, the Pharaoh says they are multiplying at such a great uh, rate that if we're not careful, they're gonna outnumber us and they will overthrow our kingdom. And so uh, we're gonna read a little bit into that tonight. And so God raises up Moses, the great deliverer, and as God raises him up, God releases 10 plagues across the land of Egypt. One of those plagues was a study that we did in another segment called the Passover. And so um, we find ourselves in this moment that after this Passover event, where God has come and he has struck down the firstborn of people and livestock in Israel, finally Pharaoh's heart is broken enough that Pharaoh says, go, just get out of here, the Hebrew people, they need to get out of our land and take your God with you. And so the scripture picks up here in Exodus chapter 14. The Bible says, then the angel of God who had been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also removed from in front and stood behind them, coming between them and the armies of Egypt and Israel. Now, what had happened, Pharaoh had released the people of Israel, and they had left, you know, basically the land of Israel. And then Pharaoh, his temper, his anger spikes again, and he says, no, I'm not going to let them go. As a matter of fact, we're just going to pin them against the sea, and we're going to slaughter every one of them. And so the Lord is leading the people of Israel, but then all of a sudden, when the, he, or the Egyptians give chase, the Lord goes from in front of them, and he stands between the armies of Egypt and the armies of Israel. And so throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other side. So there was darkness that was cast on the Egyptians and light that was cast on the people of Israel. So neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. 
And all that night, the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry land with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Now, as we jump into these, uh, these few uh, phrases of typology here, we're going to focus again, we're going to kind of pan back, and we're not just going to look at them escaping, but we're going to look at different segments of them escaping, and we will be able to relate this to the Christian life. So, number one in your notes, it reads this, Pharaoh was a brutal ruler, just as Satan is a brutal ruler. And so again, we're taking a step back in, in the lives of the average person who are bound in sin and under the lordship of Satan. Um, he is a brutal ruler for those who are not in Christ, um, just as Pharaoh was a brutal ruler. So uh, Exodus 1.14 says, in all Israel's harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. And so you can go back and you can see how uh, the Egyptians would double and triple their labor, but then they would remove certain work supplies from them. You see where Pharaoh goes and he starts murdering the firstborn children uh, in Hebrew families, just on and on again. You see the brutality of this king. And we see this in the very same way with Satan. For those who were outside of Christ, um, they, though they do not realize it, and though, frankly, many of us did not realize it, that we were under the pen of a tyrant. We were under the hands of a brutal ruler in our lives. And the reality is, is that most people, before they come to faith in Christ, most people often mistake bondage for freedom. You hear that? Most people mistake bondage for freedom in this sense. They do not realize that they are in bondage when they are in bondage and they prefer the comfort and the certainty of that bondage, oftentimes as opposed to freedom, right? And so I fear um, that, that we as the Christian church, I'm going off on a tangent here, these are not in your notes. I fear as the Christian church in the West, let's take the idea of abortion. 
we have lived in a society that has so normalized this wicked practice that the church of Christ, though the vast majority of us, I, I would hope, would say we stand against this wickedness, this evil. But I fear that there are some that if, if abortion is ever overturned, that there will be some Christians on the other side of that that see the destruction that follows that. Because trust me when I say this, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, there will be destruction in the land. And I'm afraid that there are a lot of Christians that will see the destruction if this thing is overturned and they will prefer to be back the way that things are today. Do they know it's evil? Yes. Do they know it's wicked? Absolutely. But sometimes, if we are not careful, we can mistake bondage for freedom. This is why so many people reject religion. They believe that religion is just um, a bunch of rules. And does religion have rules? Absolutely. Is religion about relationship? Absolutely. It's a combination of these things. But the reality is this, is that people fear so much the rule of God that they will prefer the rule of a brutal dictator like Satan. They'll prefer that. And so it's a very real danger that we have here. And so I just want to uh, remind us that, that uh, those of us who we love, we cannot, we cannot allow their deception to be settled in their soul. We've got to be ambassadors that remind them that they are slaves, whether they realize it or not. Jesus said this. He said, anyone who sins is what? A slave to sin. They are a slave to sin. But two verses later, what does he say? But who the son sets free is free indeed. And so in the very same way, initially for people who are not believers, we see uh, Pharaoh is a brutal, brutal uh, ruler, but also we see Satan. Number two in your notes, Egypt bound, uh, excuse me, Egypt was bound up the, the physical person. So Egypt was able to bind up the Israelites. They were able to bind them in a certain way in the same way that sin binds up the spiritual person. So the people who were in the land of Egypt as slaves, they were bound to that land. Why? Because if they left, they would probably starve to death. And so the Egyptians would give them just enough sustenance so that they could do their jobs and they could you know, live life, but ultimately die in misery. And so they, they bound the physical person, but sin does that to the spiritual person. So in Numbers chapter 14, uh, we see this over and over and over again as the people have been delivered out of the hands of Egyptian bondage. We see over and over and over again, the people make a statement like this. We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. You understand, they have just come, they have broken the bonds. They have broken away from the physical domination of Egypt and they are now free people. But time and time and time again, what do they say? They say, we need, we need to go back. Let's just go back to Egypt. Why? Because there's safety, there's comfort, we're familiar. And again, oftentimes, they would uh, mistake bondage for freedom. And so um, we've got to be uh, very cautious of that. But in the same way, sin binds up the spiritual person. Uh, John chapter 5, you remember Jesus goes and he heals a blind man on the Sabbath day. And the scripture says, um, Jesus finds him later in the temple and he goes to this man and listen to what he says. He says, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And so what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, listen, I understand the spiritual nature of a person that our propensity is bent towards sin, not towards godliness and holiness. We are bent towards sin. And so this is why you'll see Jesus time and time again. What will he say? He'll say, listen, sin 
or, or, yes, do I forgive you? Yes, but go and what? Sin no more. You'll see him talk to a person who is possessed by a demon. He'll give them deliverance, but then he'll say, listen, you need to go and you need to fill that spiritual void with the things of God, because if you don't, if you go back to your sin, seven more demons are gonna come and fill you if you don't fill that void with, with uh, the things of God. And so uh, in Proverbs, we, we hear this, you know, um, sin is like a dog that returns to its vomit, right? It, it's just over and over again, this idea that we are to resist sin in the spiritual person. And so we see this again, in our own situation, that we are to resist sin and that we are to walk in freedom. Number three, the Red Sea could not overcome in the flesh, could not be overcome in the flesh, just as salvation cannot be accomplished in the flesh. So the scripture says that Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. See, what we find as a person realizes that they are under the hands of a brutal dictator, and then they realize that my spiritual person is bound in sin, they come to a place where they know that they need salvation. They need someone to rescue and to deliver them. But oftentimes what happens is when we get to that place, we feel like we can deliver ourselves by the works of the flesh. Well, I'll just give more to charity or I'll do good work, or I'll you know, go apologize to my child that I hurt years and years ago. I will make things right. I will check off all the boxes of the things that I know I should do. I will try to be a good person, a moral person. But scripture reminds us in the same way that the Israelites, when they came up against the Red Sea, there was nothing they could do. They couldn't have swam against it. They couldn't have turned back. They were dead in the water. And the Lord comes in and he delivers them. And in the very same way, that's what the Lord does for us. Ephesians uh, 2 reminds us that this salvation that we have, it is the free gift of salvation so that no one can boast. It's not a thing that we can earn or accomplish in the flesh. It is the free gift of God into salvation. And so in the same way that the Red Sea cannot be overcome by the flesh, our salvation cannot be earned in the flesh. Number four in your notes, the Exodus plundered Egypt of riches, just as Jesus plundered hell of souls. So a really fascinating tidbit that you see in scripture, that when you first read about it, you have no idea, what does this even mean? That is such a peculiar thing for Moses to add in these writings, or the Lord to add in these writings, but listen to what verse 36 says of Exodus chapter 12. It says, the Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people of Israel. And they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. So you have a scenario where the people of Israel are leaving. They're being escorted out of the land. But somehow they have found favor with the common Egyptian. That maybe they lived in their home as a slave or in, in a side part or whatever the case may be, but they found the favor of God rested on them. And so the Egyptians would go to them and say, listen, you're going on your journey. We're gonna, you know, we're gonna miss all your hard work and all your hard labor. What can we do to make your journey better? And the favor of the Lord rested on them. And the Bible says that they plundered Israel. It uses the phrase, the verb, they plundered Israel, or excuse me, Egypt of all of her silver and gold, all of her riches, pots, pans, you name it, jewelry, all kinds of things. 
And so in the same way that, that Israel plundered Egypt of the riches, when Christ died on the cross, he plundered hell of souls, okay? Now, many of you are familiar with the Apostles' Creed. This is not, uh, this is not scripture. This is not, um, you know, the inspired word of God. But um, we, would, we would stand by the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, different things like that. We, we affirm what, what they affirm for the most part. But listen to what the, uh, the Apostles' Creed, one portion of it says, speaking of Jesus, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried, and he descended into hell. And then on the third day, he rose again from the dead. This is in the Apostles' Creed, okay? Now, listen to what Peter, the, the Apostle Peter, this is what he says in his first epistle. He says, after being made alive, Jesus went and made proclamation to the imprisoned souls, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah. So what you see is this phenomenon, and there's this huge debate throughout all of Christian history. Did Christ really descend into hell and, and share the gospel with those who had died before the cross? Did he do that? And we're never gonna be able to satisfy that question, okay? But let me say this. The text here, contextually, what Peter's saying here, he says, Jesus went and made proclamation to the imprisoned souls, and he speaks, those souls he's talking about are people that lived in the days of Noah. So it, it, contextually, it does illustrate that Jesus made a proclamation to souls that were in Hades. And so we, we see this here, and others would say, no, what that really means is, you know, Jesus never descended into hell. What it means is that, that Christ, um, prophetically speaking, he robbed hell of the souls of the future, right? And so either way, it's, it's true. He plundered the souls of men and women from the pit of hell, but was it because he went, you know, during the, the burial, or was it, was it afterwards and, and futuristic speaking? We're really not sure, but I would say contextually it kind of aligns that perhaps Christ did descend um, in a certain way. Number five in your notes, we're going to get away from that real quick. Number five in your notes, the wilderness attempted to purge Israel of her disobedience, just as sanctification attempts to purge us of our disobedience. So Numbers 14, 22, in the wilderness, Israel disobeyed, this is the Lord speaking, Israel disobeyed me and tested me 10 times. Now, this is what's fascinating, the, the, the way that the wording takes place. What we find during these 10 testings is that God is actually testing the people. So for instance, when God brings the people to this, the Red Sea, it's a test of their faith. Are they going to trust that God is fighting for us or are they gonna lack faith? Other times when you know, they, they felt like they were not gonna get to eat or so they, in, when they weren't supposed to take up the manna um, on the Sabbath day, um, some of them would do that because they lacked the faith. This was God testing the faith of the people 10 different times in the wilderness. But what the scripture kind of spins that and makes it sound like although God was testing them, their response was testing the patience of the Lord, right? And so 10 different times the people of Israel had failed the Lord as he had tested them. The purpose of the testing was to purge them of disobedience. It was to build their faith. It was to, uh, to move them along the means of sanctification and becoming more like Christ. 
in the New Testament, what we find is that Paul, he says, listen, um, you know, it is, the, it is the will of God that you should be sanctified. You know, we have these conferences at churches and different things like that. And, you know, if you had one conference, it may say intercessory prayer, and this one may say prophetic ministry, and this one may say, um, you know, how to serve people well. If you had a room, uh, you know, a breakout session that said how to know the will of God, that would be the most full. Right, everybody would just say, I don't care about spiritual gifts. I need to go, you know, the will of God. Listen to me. Can I tell you, time and time and time and time again, Scripture comes back and it says, listen, this is the will of God. There's no question. There's no debate. This is the will of God. This is one of those points. It is the will of God that you be sanctified, that you be set apart, that you become more and more like Christ and less and less like the world. And so it's, it's one of these things, just as God is taking the people of, of Israel through the wilderness, uh, you know, you've heard the phrase that, that God had gotten the people out of Egypt, but he had not gotten Egypt out of the people. In the very same way as we go through the process of sanctification, God has rescued us from sin, right? But God is continually trying to get the sin out of us. He's trying to purge us and to mature us and to sanctify us in that process. Number six in your notes, it says God used the challenges of the promised land to mature Israel just as God used challenges, uses challenges of our life to mature us. So in the same way that God used the challenges of the promised land to mature the people, listen to what Deuteronomy 7 says. When the Lord your God brings you to the land you are to enter, uh, to possess, and drives out before you many nations. Listen, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. So this is the the picture that's being painted. As God is bringing them into the promised land, there are still battles that they have to fight. There are still challenges that are present before them. And here's the thing about those challenges. They are bigger challenges and they are stronger challenges than what Israel thinks they can tolerate. But then God, he steps in and he says, no, listen to me. You face this full with faith. And I'm going to give you the endurance, but you are going to destroy them. You will have victory as you go through this. And so God is trying to mature and to grow his people through challenges. You know what this is like in your personal life. There have been times where, you know, if you've been a Christian for 20, 25 years, 10 years, whatever the case may be, you may look back a few years ago and there may have been a situation in your life where you just kind of resorted and you said, I just can't handle this, it's just too much. This is going to crush my life, it's gonna crush my soul, I just can't do this. But you did do it. The challenge was greater than you, it was stronger than you, but the Lord endured, he gave you grace, he gave you confidence, he gave you help, but you overcame that, and because you overcame that, you are now more mature now than you were then. And so for many of us today, if we had to face the same challenges that we faced 10 years ago, those mountains would look a whole lot smaller. Why? Are they smaller? No, but you're bigger, right? Because as we go through the challenges and God is maturing us and he's bringing us into maturity. Listen to what James, the brother of Jesus said. He said, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, 
let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So the brother of Christ himself says, listen, you've got to have a different perspective on what challenges and trials look like for you. You can't see them as obstacles. You've got to see them as opportunities. And when you begin to see them as opportunities, what God is going to do is he's going to help you. He's going to assist you by faith, and you will become more and more mature every challenge that you are able to overcome. And then finally, number seven in your notes, the promised land is an earthly paradise just as heaven is an earthly paradise. So the promised land was kind of, there were challenges in the promised land. We can't just look at the promised land and say, oh, well, that's just symbolic of heaven. Well, no, we're not going to have the challenges that they faced in heaven. So there, there is a part of the promised land that was filled with challenge, but there was another part of the promised land that was like their destination. They had arrived. They had fulfilled their purpose. And so um, we see that it was kind of like an earthly paradise for them. Scripture says this in Leviticus 20. The Lord said, you will possess their land. I will give it to you as an inheritance, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who set you apart from the nations. So they are going into a land that is flowing with milk and honey, which basically, like today, if somebody said that to me, that would not be appealing at all, okay? Um, but in that day, what the Lord was saying to them is, listen, I'm about to take you a land that's fertile. And all of your cattle, all your goats, all your livestock, they're going to be able to thrive. There's milk and honey. That means there's vegetation. That means there are insects. That means there is honey and there was literal milk. But the purpose of what God is saying is that this is going to be everything that you wanted it to be. It's going to sustain you. It's going to meet every single need that you have in this lifetime. You've just got to arrive there. And can I remind us of this simply? That is a typology of what heaven is for us. Heaven is a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a place where every need is going to be exceedingly filled. It's going to be a place where there's no harm and no sickness and no death. It is truly going to be a place like paradise, what we will call, what the writer of Hebrews calls, we will enter into our ultimate rest, just as the people of Israel were trying to find their rest in the promised land. And so that was their episode of deliverance. And again, as we take a step back, we see how the Lord had delivered them in different stages. And we can see how the Lord delivers us in our personal lives through different stages as we are on our way to heaven. Amen. Amen.